1: Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and one hundred five point seven FM HD two.
2: Lots to get to. President Trump says that Secretary of State Mike Pompeo had him try or recommended to have him fire the uh, the IG. But then he's saying that he's on hydroxychlorine. So lots to come from uh, from what we got to break down. Justin Sink, our White House reporter, he's going to help us navigate through the. The headlines coming out of President Trump's White House, plus Fed Chair Jay Powell, warning of a slow recovery. It's going to be a Nike swoosh. Not a U-curve, a Nike swoosh. That's what the economists are saying. He was on 60 Minutes. He'll be on, well, I guess he's not technically going to be on Capitol Hill. He's going to testify virtually before the Senate Banking Committee tomorrow, along with Treasury Secretary Mnuchin. I'll give you a complete preview of that, Uh, and... I did an interview with Susan Lund over at McKinsey, uh, and I want you guys to hear it because it is remarkable the data that's coming out of here, and just the positioning of of what to to make of this now recovery that they're saying will won't be kickstarted until until next calendar year. Uh, we've gonna we're gonna dive into the full recap of Fed Chair Jay Powell, who says that the Fed is going to be using the full range of tools to support the economy. He made those comments in prepared remarks released earlier today ahead of the virtual hearing before the Senate Banking Committee tomorrow. He goes on to say in these comments, quote, We expect to maintain interest rates at this level until we are confident that the economy has weathered recent events and is on track to achieve our maximum employment and price stability goals. But he's not, he doesn't like the negative interest rates that uh, President Trump wants to have. You know, it, the Fed chair gave an interview to CBS's 60 Minutes uh, that aired on Sunday. Did you see that? It was, it was fascinating. Uh, anytime the Fed chair is on, uh, does a national interview like that, it's remarkable to see. Uh, just because before all this started, it was so rare. Uh, he's told 60 Minutes, quote, we're not out of ammunition by a long shot. We can enlarge our existing lending programs, and we can start new lending programs if need be. Well, folks, we just don't know precisely what those uh, tools are going to be. I'm sure lawmakers are going to ask him about it tomorrow. Now let's get to the White House. Joining us on the telephone line, Bloomberg White House reporter Justin Sink. Justin, President Trump making a ton of headlines <laughs> this afternoon. First, he you, says the afternoon. that... Uh, that that he's on hydroxychlorine. I saw this on Twitter because I was prepping for the show. He's on hydroxychlorine. What's going on?
4: yeah so uh towards the end of this uh meeting with restaurant executives today the the president was actually asked a question about whistleblowers and, and we meandered down a couple of different avenues as uh, as he has wont to do and uh said at the end that that for about a week and a half he's been taking hydroxychloroquine which is the malaria drug and maybe um, i should
2: say it right but i've always good. said it hydroxychlorine but I, hydroxychloroquine i apologize i promise that i know what it is go ahead yeah, uh,
4: but it's this experimental uh, malaria drug that, that, there's some anecdotal evidence that it's been effective in either preventing or uh, helping speed recovery from COVID. Uh, so the president said that, that you know he's taking that, he's taking zinc, he's taking uh, or took a treatment of z which is kind of a broad spectrum antibiotic. They, these are the, the different treatments that are sort of under review right now. But uh, what's remarkable is that he did so even though there has not yet been sort of hard scientific evidence that that those treatments are effective in fighting or preventing uh, COVID. And there are some, you know, warning signs that it could be uh, uh, detrimental to health, especially for, for folks with heart conditions. But the president said, you know, he had heard a lot of good things. He went to the White House doctor, said he wanted to take it, and, and the doctor signed off on it. So he um, started about a week and a half ago, and that's when, as you might remember, uh, Katie Miller, who's the Vice President Pence's press secretary, tested positive for coronavirus uh, when she came into the White House.
2: But he, he doesn't have coronavirus.
4: Yeah, he says that he's test negative, that he has no symptoms. But uh, you know, there again is some anecdotal evidence or or stories out there that that um, hydroxychloroquine might be helping frontline workers uh, prevent themselves from from catching the disease. Again, no scientific uh, evidence to prove that. But the president seems to be interested in the uh, the possibility. And what's going on?
2: What's going on with the watchdog?
4: uh, That was the
2: original question, not this hydroxychloroquine. And by the way, I never pretended to be a doctor. Go ahead. We haven't talked about hydroxychloroquine on this show. I've just been reading about it because we're an economy show. But go ahead, Justin. Yeah. What's going on with the Pompeo watchdog?
4: Yeah. So late Friday night, um, the president fired the State Department Inspector General. Yep. Uh, which is the fourth inspector general that he's removed since April. Um, And in the interim, we learned from from Democrats on Capitol Hill their concerns that that he was pursuing two lines of inquiry. One was that that Secretary Pompeo may have been using State Department staffers to do personal tasks like grabbing his laundry or um, uh, dry cleaning, stuff like that. or walking his dog, all sorts of personal tasks. The second, and a little more substantively, is that... that the administration may have been trying to subvert uh, an act of Congress that that was restricting uh, arms sales to Saudi Arabia over the the conflict in Yemen. There's been accusations of of human rights abuses being sort of carried out through the use of American uh, missiles and and other arms. And so uh, apparently both these investigations were going on at the point where Mike Pompeo and and Trump explained this to us today. uh... Came to Trump and said that he wanted the inspector general removed. President Trump did not seem concerned by either of these developments. I, I asked him about them both. He said uh, he'd rather have somebody at the State Department walk, walking my like Pompeo's dog if he was on an important call, you know, uh, conducting foreign policy with somebody like Kim Jong-un. Uh, so that didn't seem to concern him. And, uh, on the Saudi issue, the president said he wasn't really aware of what was going on there. And so it, it doesn't seem like Mike Pompeo in any amount of trouble. Yeah. With I, the I, listen, lately.
2: I want to echo that because I don't think he's in any trouble either. And based upon the sources that I talked to and, and mind you, can we just call a spade a spade here for a second? Every single aide. I'm sorry. Every single principal on both sides of the aisle, I don't care if you're Hillary Clinton or Mike Pompeo, has staffers that that help them out. I mean, and that's just not unique to Washington, D.C. I mean, look, no I mean, Amy Klobuchar, we've heard about her stories, but also CEOs have that as well. I mean, so is this rare? I don't I don't think that this is rare that that what's in the zeitgeist about the staffer. Do you?
4: I think that uh, there are rules within uh, departments oh, about using. I'll, you
2: and I right both now. know, my friend, that they all have people who help them out. Come on. On both <laughs> sides. And, so, and, and the same on Wall Street.
4: I would not say that the the dog walking is the biggest, the, the bigger of the two issues here for sure. I would concede <laughs> right, that perhaps subverting Congress's will by illegally selling arms <laughs> to Saudi Arabia would be a slightly bigger deal than
2: that. Well, whether stocks or not like Justin ever. Sink, we got to leave it there. We're running out of time. But thank you so much, Justin Sink, uh, Bloomberg White House reporter. And mind you, stocks jumped the most in almost six weeks. And oil gains. Let's just get ahead of the Bloomberg terminal right now. Stocks surged the most in almost six weeks after promising early results for an experimental vaccine sparked speculation economies could snap back quickly. Crude oil advanced and yields on treasuries rose. The S&P 500 surged 3.2% after Moderna said its vaccine tests yielded signs that it can create an immune system response in the body. Optimism, folks. Let's start the week with some optimism. Optimism. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio. Coming up next, we dive headfirst into that recovery with Susan Lund of McKinsey. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. I'm
2: Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Do you see this on the uh, Bloomberg Terminal? Automated grocery warehouses could be the future for strip malls. What are they going to do with all those malls? You know, they're saying retail with everyone, you know, it's the the changing economy and things aren't there's structural changes happening in every sector. Uh, all, so I guess, according to Max Ray's reporting on the Bloomberg Terminal, strip mall landlords should consider building automated warehouses for grocery store tenants to capitalize on the newfound demand for online delivery brought on by the coronavirus pandemic according to a BTIG LLC note they're a big uh, you know firm that does the shopping malls so it's going to be fascinating i mean how how we rebuild It's one thing to rebuild. It's one thing to reopen, but we might have to remake. And the point of Max's story is that if you look at all of the real estate for shopping malls all across the country, those are great infrastructures and great supply chains, potentially for how America eats, how America gets its products. All of that could be a legacy, one of the many legacies besides temperature checks and plexiglass and masks, the masks, Uh, the automated grocery uh, warehouses biggest S&P 500 bull signals seen in bottoming earnings revisions. It was a good day on the market. A hard to see shift in how Wall Street views the future of the S&P 500 profits may have set the stage for days like today, according to Lou Wang on the terminal. When stocks are rising the most in nearly three weeks, and earnings expectations continue to embed a world of pain for demand depleted companies projections on the scope of the disaster have recently undergone a mild easing going by analysts estimate it really is remarkable to see the positive market uh, fluctuations in the in the path for today and the optimism on the market up on the street uh, and they're gonna be reopening at the end of the month the the stock exchange floors and then you read an article about you know the heartland and how the supply chains are changing with regards to automated grocery warehouses all of this as fed chair Jay powell and treasury secretary mnuchin are going to testify tomorrow it's like we're swimming in this dizzying array of economic data and no one can make sense of it and that's why i was so grateful uh to be able to speak with earlier today as uh, as we continue our conversations with her uh susan lund and susan of course is uh, one of the partners at mckinsey in washington dc's office take a listen to my conversation
3: Well, we know for sure that we're going to have a different set of activities as we come back. Some things like commercial air travel may not return to what they were for many, many years. And associated with that could be things like hospitality, the oil and gas sectors going through um, a shock having to do with an OPEC agreement. So on the other hand, we know that healthcare delivery, public health services, pharmaceuticals, these things are gonna be in more of a demand. So in every recession, you see some shift in the mix of activities within an economy, but coming out of COVID, I think it's going to be a much greater shift than anything we've seen before. And to follow up
2: on that, do we know yet how consumer spending is going to be impacted in the short term?
3: Well, what we know is at the moment, Consumers aren't spending that when we work from home, we don't spend on pretty much anything except groceries. Um, as the economy starts to come back, though, I think there are going to be real question marks over what the new normal will be for consumer behavior. How quickly are people going to want to go back to large sporting events or concerts or entertainment venues? Um, To what extent will some people continue working from home? And then that changes your wardrobe and your spending patterns around um, food service and transportation. Um, Another question is about the shift to digital. So what we see now, just like we're doing these interviews from home um, via Skype, we know that people are doing telemedicine, online learning, streaming entertainment. Nice. And surveys that we've done at McKinsey suggest that a lot of that behavior may be what we call sticky, meaning it may persist. Yes, there will be some drop off when we can all go out, but some of it is likely to be a permanent shift towards digital channels.
2: One of the studies at McKinsey actually looked at specific states. What were some of the hardest hit states uh, by this?
3: Well, we did a lot of looking at who's vulnerable in jobs. And what you find is this can be either because their jobs in establishments that were shut down during the stay at home measures, or in industries where demand is just lower, like commercial air travel or manufacturing for different types of goods. Um, The states that are hardest hit are a little bit surprising. It's really those that rely on travel and tourism places like Nevada, and to a lesser extent Florida, that saw the biggest job losses just because of uh, the predominance of, of tourism and related industries in their economies.
2: Is there is there any uh, impact yet on how states that have reopened or decided to reopen more quick, has that had a, a, a more positive economic impact or do they put themselves at risk for a more negative impact in the fall?
3: Well, we do expect a positive short-term economic impact for sure. And you can look at pictures of people out on the beach and so on and know that they're spending money. Um, Now, what we don't know is the extent to which there could be a resurgence of the virus because of reopening. And it'll take three to four weeks after reopening before we start to see the case numbers tick up. And hopefully we won't. But we are in the midst of an experiment about the extent to which we can reopen without re-triggering the virus. Globally,
2: where does the United States rank in terms of how its economy will be positioned post-pandemic?
3: Well, the US economy is in for, we're in the midst of a massive shock. We're in for a drop in economic activity in the second quarter that we haven't seen since the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, Europe is in a similar position. Asian countries are actually doing better. The U.S. is not doing as well there. And that, I think, is because they had to go through the SARS virus 15 years ago. And so they had some of the public health measures and testing, and they were used to wearing face masks, and they jumped on this virus quickly and really suppressed it. So in that regard, the U.S. is taking a much bigger hit than, for instance, Singapore, Hong Kong, South Korea, China is. Uh, But coming out, I would hope that the dynamism of the US economy and the diversity and frankly, the geographic diversity uh, is going to play to our strength. And every state is making up their own policies. And we're going to be able to see what works better, what doesn't work so well.
2: That was my interview with Susan Lund uh, earlier today uh, for Bloomberg Television, and she is a McKinsey uh, partner in the Washington, D.C. She's a partner at McKinsey & Company, the leader of the McKinsey Global Institute based in Washington, D.C. And a fascinating conversation, a fascinating conversation with her uh, to see how all of this is really going. Coming up, we talk more policy and politics. My name is Kevin Cirilli, and you're listening to Bloomberg 991.
5: Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com.
6: Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member
1: SIPC and NYSE. You're listening to Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2.
2: I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and Radio. Let's kick off the week with some optimism, shall we, folks? Northam's opening the beaches. Governor Ralph Northam, Democrat, opening the beaches. Well, you can't do anything, but you can go sunbathe. And, um, okay, I'll take it. President Xi Jinping said China will make any coronavirus vaccine universally available once it's developed, that according to the Bloomberg Terminal. Uh, But more importantly, Moderna showed promising early signs that it can create an immune system response in the body that could help fend off the virus based on a small early human trial. Stock surged, surged on that news. And uh the us case rise is the lowest that it's been in 2 weeks and there's vaccine hope that's the big headline of today that the us case rise the increase in coronavirus cases is the lowest that it has been in 2 weeks and of course there is that that hope for uh a vaccine as well uh cases in the us 4.7 million and uh China faces angry world seeking virus answers at the key World Health Organization meeting. We're going to talk about that with Joel Rubin coming up. He's a Democratic strategist and a former deputy assistant secretary for legislative affairs at the State Department. Um, And I definitely want to ask him about uh, Xi at the the World Health Organization. But let's keep it domestic in 2020. uh, Boyd Matheson, he is the former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee. He is an opinion editor of the Deseret news boyd thanks for coming on
7: hey great to be with you kevin happy monday
2: happy hey you know what we've had worse mondays (laughs) in the pandemic am i right
7: am i right we we have yeah
2: (laughs) are you based in dc or you're in utah where in utah are you
7: actually i'm I'm right downtown salt lake city so we are um, moving forward things are opening up and uh very, very positive here in the state of Utah.
2: Well, let's let's go. Let's start in Utah because every time we have a guest on from uh, out of the Beltway, we want to know what it's like and what it's like on the ground where they are. So, tell us about how Utah's handling this, how Salt Lake is handling this, uh, and and uh, and what's going on on the ground.
7: So, so a couple of interesting things in terms of uh, of Utah. Utah was one of the few states that uh, never did have a. Uh, lockdown or you know shelter in place order coming from the governor. Uh, it was a directive, and it was a, you know stay safe, stay smart, stay at home, and the people. It was all about behavior. So the the behavior worked. Was, we flattened the curve, and and uh, things were very positive there. We also have uh, you know a great economy going in the state of Utah, one of the best in the country. Uh, and so we were able to, to weather some of those things. We're also one of the states, again, a great laboratory of democracy. Uh, so we have a nice rainy day fund, balance the books. And so there were funds available to help uh, some of those that were struggling. Uh, and then it's so we have a great free market economy. We have strong institutions of civil society. Uh, in fact, one just fascinating thing, uh, a combination group from uh, the IHC health system, University of Utah, uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. They they came together for the frontline healthcare workers, saying, "Okay, we need we need masks for them." And they put out a call that they were going to make five million masks in five me- in five weeks. So you're talking about ten thousand volunteers show up every Tuesday morning. They pick up the supplies, they go home, they put them together, they sew them together. They drop them off that Saturday, and bam, you've got a million masks. Amazing. No taxes, no threats of government intervention, no mandate to do anything. Uh, civil society actually works, and, and it's why Utah's economy is thriving. Uh, it's why we're, gonna, we're best positioned to come out of this with a strong international economy as well. Uh, and so a lot of positives here, challenges to be sure. Um, but this is a place that really shows that if you let the laboratory of democracy work, the American people know what to do. Uh, we got to ha- we got to trust the American people more and quit having Washington tell us to trust them.
2: Boyd Matheson's on the line. He's the former chief of staff to Senator Mike Lee. He is an opinion edit- editor now at the Deseret News, and uh, he joins us from Salt Lake in uh, Salt Lake City in Utah. Uh, Boyd, let's turn to 2020. Uh, because, well, first of all, and just to put a an end note on that, it's going to be interesting. I mean, I think that that the the faith community in the country is is going to continue to be needed especially when it comes to education in the fall because there's so as you know mm. every school system across the country is having to grapple with what to do based on the health data and the numbers and the curves and you know hopefully there's not a resurgence but i mean child care is going to be such an enormous issue come the fall uh and it's going to be something i think that's going to be on the radar and on the minds of a lot of americans of every american yeah uh, yeah, Boyd, I
7: think you're, you're, abs- you're absolutely right.
2: Boyd, let's let's stick with 2020, though. I mean, what are you noticing? I know you're out in a, in a red state, but as the contours of this race continue to intensify between Biden and uh, President Trump, what is the key differences? And, and I don't want Republicans spin. I don't want Democrats spin. But what are the key contours of the race of how this pandemic has impacted the 2020 election?
7: Yeah, and and I'm glad you framed it that way, Kevin, because it really isn't left or right. I think the American people are exhausted by both of those. Uh, So it's not about what you're against. So if you're on the Democratic side of the aisle, you just can't be against President Trump. Uh, That's not going to get you a victory in November. Uh, And obviously, if you're on the Republican side, uh, you can't just go with the regular old talking points. There's an increasing group um, that we've been identifying as the movable middle and these are not just independents. These are, these are folks who have either voted Democrat or voted Republican. They may cross over, uh, but they are disgusted with the process. But here's the interesting thing, Kevin. The thing that will get these people to engage is community, <laughs> upward mobility, opportunity, responsibility. Uh, and so it's a very interesting subset of things that they're saying. Hey, if you're going to talk about these kinds of things, then I'm in. I want to be part of that conversation. If you're going to give me blue talking points or red talking points, uh, I've got no time for it. I'm trying to keep my family rolling, keep my kids educated at home, uh, and deal with some of these other challenges. Do you
2: think all of these noise and all of the all of the headlines you know coming out today? President Trump says he's on hydroxychloroquine. Um, You know, and and Biden, obviously, with what he's been going from the from the basement bunker camera shot. I mean, is that really going to play in uh, in in November or or, or what do you think the fourth quarter closing line of argument will be come November? Yeah,
7: I think the closing argument is is going to be a measure of confidence. Uh, And I think whoever can not say trust me, but I trust you, the American people, I'm going to trust you with your tax money, I'm going to trust you to make uh, decisions with your doctors, I'm going to trust you with a a way to go at education, Uh, I think that trust component is going to be the real critical thing. Uh, Surely government has a role to play uh, but I know Americans across the board are looking at $3 trillion here, $4 trillion there, there, uh, and watching that rack up with uh, a lot of nervousness because they know ultimately that's going to hurt the poor and the most vulnerable the most. Uh, and so the American people get that part of it because there's that kind of gnawing thing in their gut that says, hey, wait a minute, neither of those are right. Uh, and So I think whoever makes the case for confidence in the fall – And gives people a reason, hey, this is what we're for. Here's where we're going. I think the one thing that President Trump needs to do is he needs to call the American people to something uh, to, to move that forward. If you're looking at the Democrats, Joe Biden has got to get a message, not just that we're against this administration. This is what we're for, for the American people. Whoever makes that case best. Uh, is is really going to get the momentum I think rolling into the fall.
2: So so Biden according to to uh so the the poll of polls on Real Clear Politics, he's up by about 6 percentage points. That's you know, Harvard Harris has a poll out. Uh Biden's up 6 nationally in a general election. If you look at states like Arizona, Wisconsin, and Michigan, he's he's you know, 3 points up. That's a, obviously a very close race. But why do you think that is? Cuz the country hasn't seen they've seen more of Obama this weekend than they saw of Biden.
7: Yeah, and I think that's actually helping Joe Biden, <laughs> uh, because the, the, the less time he spends on big stages or in really hard interviews, I, I think that's to his advantage. That's not his strength. That's not where he's going to play uh, best. That's where he's most likely to commit a gaffe of, of some sort or another. Uh, and and there is, you know, I mean, President Obama can get on the, the screen and deliver a killer uh, speech to graduates, and it, it sounds good, and that's helpful, and that's hopeful. Uh, And so I think that's actually, you know, benefits Joe Biden in the end. Uh, I don't think that's a sustainable model for the Biden campaign. And obviously whoever he chooses as the vice president is going to have a big role to play in in terms of assuming that part of the role.
2: All right. Boyd Matheson, thanks so much for coming on. He's the chief of staff for uh, former chief of staff for Senator Mike Lee. How's Senator Lee doing?
7: He's doing great. Just uh, connected with him over the weekend and. he got some important things passed uh, last week in terms of surveillance, and uh, yeah. now I think he's going to try to get everyone's attention as it relates to debts and deficits.
2: I would I would, he'd tell him to call in. We would gladly hear from Senator Lee. Uh, that's Boyd Matheson. He's an opinion editor Deser, of the Deseret News. Uh, coming up, we talk about China. China. You're listening to Bloomberg 991.
1: This is Bloomberg Sound On with Kevin Cerilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2. That's
2: a great song. It's a really great song. Uh, I'm Kevin Cerilli, Chief Washington correspondent for Bloomberg Television and for Bloomberg Radio. I have not seen the finale, folks, of uh, the Michael Jordan thing. I'm watching it tonight and I'm very excited. I finally got caught up. I don't want it to end. I don't want it to end. I have so many thoughts. I, I could I could do a whole hour on my thoughts on, on Michael Jordan, but we're not because we're going to keep it focused, right, Christine Barata, our executive producer of all things Bloomberg Radio. Sound on. We're going to stay on track. However, I think Michael Jordan's image is going to be, it'll be interesting to see. I will be a reporter. I will not take a position. It will be interesting to see how Michael Jordan's image stays the same. Does not changes? We don't know. We don't know. I do wish that the ESPN documentary was a little bit longer because I want to know more about uh, the gambling stuff. Uh, Joel Rubin's on the line. He's a Democratic strategist, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs at the State Department. Joel, have you watched the Michael Jordan thing on ESPN?
6: Oh, Kevin, I grew up watching Michael Jordan, so I've had had my fill. <laughs> <laughs>
2: well, I, I was like a toddler when he was in his heyday uh, and yeah. I, I mean, I remember space jam who doesn't remember space jam, right? I mean, come on. but, <laughs> but I will say to you, Joel, I didn't know anything of these scandals that were going on. You know, I just was like, yeah. Oh, it's Michael Jordan, air Jordan. He, you know, dunks and jumps high. And, but I had no idea about the, you know, the gambling, for example, it's amazing. It's really well done.
6: Uh, you know, when Abe Pollan threw him out of uh, Washington in the Wizards His last two years, I don't think they're covering that in here, but that was a bad <laughs> sign. No, I
2: don't think they are either. But I've got one more <laughs> episode left, so no spoilers. Okay, so uh, Xi Jinping, did you see this, Joel? Xi Jinping yeah. of China, the Communist Party of China, They uh, he, he addressed the World Health Organization. And, you know, he's got a lot of questions, a lot of questions uh, in terms of, uh, what exactly is going to, uh, how this is going to play out? And I'm curious for your take. I mean, did you follow that today?
6: Yeah, I did. And uh, Kevin, this is like a textbook example about how to give the high ground to your adversaries, what <laughs> we just witnessed. Xi Jinping. China has a lot to account for. And basically, by Donald Trump walking away from the World Health Organization, he's allowed Xi to set the stage and take control and look like a real global leader. And um, it's, it's uh, not going to get us the answers we want or the standing we want.
2: Okay, so China pledges $2 billion to help fight the coronavirus. You're saying you think President Trump should have showed up. I mean, to be honest, though, I mean, I think a lot of countries in Europe, or you would know better, do you think a lot of countries in Europe are starting to wake up that uh, China wasn't so transparent with this thing?
6: Oh, absolutely. there's There's a real problem there, without a doubt. But when the U.S. doesn't show up and say, hey, we're going to be part of fixing this, we basically leave our allies on their own and at the mercy of China in this case. And so it's a, it's a real problem for American global leadership. No one should doubt that China played a role at the beginning. How much, of course, I do debate because I think President Trump's using it for domestic politics. But all that aside, the rest of the world wants us at the table to lead in the response and fixing the WHO's issues, not allowing China to take control as uh, of the agenda as they seem to be okay, doing. So
2: I, Joel Rubin's on the line. He's the former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs at the at the um at the State Department, he's a Democratic strategist. Let's leave Republican and Democrat out of this for a second, and let's just specifically focus on China and specifically yes. focus on the World Health Organization. What exactly? How, how does the World Health Organization need to be remade? Because China's impact—I yeah. mean, it's it's nonpartisan statement. China's impact on the World Health Organization has been uh, very much. Uh, overstated, so to speak, or um, very much uh, in the thick of things, so to speak. So what needs to change at the World Health Organization, Joel, uh, in order to provide for more transparency?
6: Yeah, I think what we need to do is, is we need to ensure the WHO is in its early warning systems when it catches the pandemic, that it has total freedom to communicate that to the outside world. And there were alarm bells going off early and early enough, but not as early as there should have been. And the the WHO needs to be able to get in and identify uh, the virus in this case, identify, get samples so that we can help get to to vaccines and, and other treatments quickly. That's the real problem. And so structurally, the WHO, it's part of an international system of bodies that are always flawed, but uh, it, it, as the saying goes, if you didn't have, it, you'd have to create it. We, we have to have an international entity that deals with global health, and uh, we have to make sure it's transparent and that everybody at the table uh, is getting what they need. I think that's where the concern is here from the U.S. side, and it's bipartisan concern. The question is, is how do we get that information out, and how do we ensure the WHO does its work better the next time? But I, I will say we have walked away from the WHO and we were walking away from many international organizations but why, but wait, for the last several years but why I have to ask you this
2: cuz you've made that point and I want to I want to keep I want to make cuz you yeah. have so much knowledge and I want to get it I want to get it out of you which is what how do we it, it, but if China is it's one thing for Xi Jinping to give a, a a video conference call a glorified video conference call and say yeah here's 2 billion bucks <laughs> and I'm going to throw this money and help with the vaccine but why wasn't he transparent about the information and that is a fatal flawing an economic one and a health one, uh, from the World Health Organization. It's—I mean, if, if the countries yeah. are not going to be transparent about yeah. the data, then the World Health Organization is—is is what is the what is the use of it? Well, I
6: don't think the WHO was hiding. I think that the, the well, what China was—was was China it- hiding? Sure, China was certainly. So then, uh, how do uh, we
2: correct course? Because it's 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 one thing to say, "Here's the cash. Here's two billion dollars. Let's throw money at this thing." But how do we correct course so that Xi Jinping doesn't hide data again in the case of another pandemic?
6: We're always we're always trying to to figure out how to get information out, out of uh, countries and out of our adversaries. There's no doubt about it. But we cut our staff in China, sitting at the actual lab that now the Trump administration is blaming, cut it by two-thirds of our CDC staff. So we need to engage, engage, engage. We need to flood the zone with intellectual support. Bill Gates has said this time and again as well. We need to be providing funding. We need to have the votes at the table. To ensure that the doors are open, so China right now they can put two billion on the table and they can say we're going to take the lead in the votes. We're actually going to require a bigger filter before information gets
2: out. But see, that I just find happen. this fascinating because okay, I hear you. what you just said. There was bolster the the, the staff in China, bolster you know the, the the people on the ground in China. Okay, that's one thing. But my question that I still can't wrap my head around Joel Rubin, and, and it's really bothered me yeah. for because I don't hear anyone giving a clear answer on this, is how, if if Xi Jinping is not going to be transparent about this data, about this information, and and I think it's going to be something that Joe Biden has to answer and President Trump has to answer, which is how will you make China more transparent well, in, in the how, case how of do this you, how do you, again?
6: How do you turn the country into perfect, look, China's dictatorship. I, I was in China a year ago. There are Serious, significant flaws there. But it's quite possible that the information coming out of Wuhan and into the, the, uh, into the WHO in the early days stayed in Wuhan and didn't even get to Beijing. These are issues I totally agree we have to address. We can't allow these failures to happen again. And the only way to do it is to have a seat at the table. That's what I'm arguing. But we do do need the pattern trace in a sense as to what the failure was to remedy the problem. But no, China is not a, a clean actor in this, but they're also not the whole cause of the problem here domestically, that's for sure.
2: Joel Rubin, you know, it's been a while since you've been on. I really appreciate this conversation. Democratic (laughs) strategist Joel Rubin, former Deputy Assistant Secretary for Legislative Affairs at the the State Department. I mean, it's such an important conversation because here's Xi Jinping, you know, doing like a glorified Zoom for the World Health Organization. Oh, here's $2 billion. But still, no one has been able... I mean, Joel, and you just put some concrete proposals right there on the table. No one really is talking about what has to happen in order to get... China, which, by the way, 71% of Democrats, 76% of Republicans, or 80-something of Republicans, according to Morning Consult, have a lot of tough questions for China. So it's a—it's really turned into a nonpartisan issue asking these questions to China. My name is Kevin Cirilli. Much more tomorrow. I'm the Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg TV and for Bloomberg Radio, and you're listening to Bloomberg 99.1.